Welcome to Wired for Impact, home of creators, entrepreneurs, and leaders who are wired to make a difference. If you're here, it's because you have three things. Number one, a unique gift or calling. Number two, you care about people. And number three, you have a deep desire to contribute. When you add those three things up, you are in the game of creating impact. You are what I call an impact player. My name is Peter King. I'm the host of the program. And in each episode, I have conversations with world-class impact players who have aligned their unique gifts with the contribution they've made in the world to create massive impact. So listen into these conversations and allow them to inspire you to overcome the obstacles in your way and to fulfill your potential. Okay, I'm here with Mr. Tony Blauer again. Thank you, Tony, for coming and talking to me today. Absolutely, man. It's great to be back. I'm excited to, you know, what we're, this this part two is very exciting for me as we discussed, and it's one of the reasons that I was uh, excited to jump back on with you. Yeah, thank you for, uh, for doing that. We ended our last call. Um, I was asking you some questions about knowing fear from a kid's perspective and from a parent's perspective, and and uh, that really opened up a whole nother path of conversation that we didn't have time to get into then. So here we are today. But before we get into that, I, of course, have to ask you the most important question of the day, which is what is your take on the Will Smith, Chris Rock (laughs) slap? And the reason, honestly, I was going to open that with a little bit of humor. But on the other hand, maybe there actually is something there for us to take away. I'm curious from your perspective. Is there anything there that you... Yeah, man, I, I've got I've got nothing to say, and I've got a lot to say. How fast? How soon will this show come out? Will this conversation even be relevant? Uh, pretty quick. So, as of the recording of this talk right now, this happened just a few days ago. The, the in, infamous slap. So, uh, right. Yeah, it should, it should be live here um, in the next week or so. Okay, and the, the reason being is like like is this a distraction from a bunch of other shit? Was it set up? Was it fake? There are so many. There's so many elements of it that make it look fake. Will Smith trains. He knows how to throw a punch. You know, he's pulling away. Chris Rock has his hands behind his back and he's leaning in. He actually leans into it. Like, I, you know, I've watched slow motion freeze because I get I get hit up on it. And I told everyone, I was like, I don't give a shit. I don't care. Could it's care less. Silly. Because it's really an example of, of white privilege, right? Like in the most controversial sense, if that had happened outside... If it had been a Republican versus a Democrat, if it had been a white versus black, if it had been a politician, if it had been on January 6th over here, whatever, it's insane. But like, where was security? Where was police? Somebody assaulted somebody. That's breaking the law. It's on TV. Wait a minute. No, the guy's getting an Academy Award. There's so much about it is, is, is you know, where's yeah, the Academy cool. Award for that? It's, it's all bullshit. Now, you know, we talk a lot about our, our psychology, our fear management, you know, uh, my company teaches probably the world's only truly behaviorally based self-defense. And by behaviorally based self-defense, I'm talking about understanding the neuroscience of fear, the neuroscience of survival, understanding elements of our brain, like what does our reticular activating system, the RAS system do when it picks up an anomaly? How does that send messages to our instincts, our intuition, and our intelligence? You know, everyday events happen Uh, violent and crazy events happen and some people freeze and some people run some people fight and some people freeze and get overwhelmed so i study all that and i've reverse engineered over the last 40 years a system when i look at that event i can first of all if if it was set up and scripted in any way and it just got a little out of hand or or whatever there might have been 
a, hey, let's, I'm going to make a joke. You know, I'm an edgy comedian. I'm going to make a joke. It's going to happen. Okay. Because if you look at the clip, he's laughing at the joke. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden he gets up almost like the timing was off and he gets up and there's actually a clip. Uh, there's a Getty image. So it's not like Photoshop. There's a Getty image, but of course that could be Photoshopped. <laughs> Who, what is real anymore? Are you even, right? right? <laughs> where, where Will Smith's turning and there's a smirk in Chris Rock's eyes and there's a smile on, on his face after the hit and he's turning back. I don't know if you saw that. There's one. And I'm like, if you were that angry and you just smack somebody in front of 12 million people, would you be smiling there? The hit really doesn't, there's slow motion. You could see, you know, Rock leans in, uh, in a little bit and then he takes it and, you know, did they rehearse it? Did they choreograph it? I mean, if somebody really insulted your wife and you were going to hit them, would it be with a fist or open hand? Would you That's pull what I was thinking. There's so much fake shit about it. Yeah. But let me help you and your audience get safer. Because this is the stuff that uh, that nobody's talking about. And of course, this is possibly also the stuff that nobody thinks about. The moment a person is in your trust circle, you're through osmosis. And this could be a comedian buddy. It could be a family member. It could be your a gardener, the mailman, somebody you see frequently once they're inside your, through osmosis, your radar, and you go, that's okay. Like if you saw, let's say you have a, a gardener working in your house and there's a, like a new truck with new guys in your backyard, you'd be like, what the, the fuck is this? Excuse me, excuse me. Like, you know, and they better have a story right away. Like, yeah, I'm like, uh, my buddy sent me, he didn't call you, it's so-and-so. Like things work out. Our first line of defense when people say, how come we didn't flinch? How come we didn't do this? How come we didn't? Our first line of defense is our, our instincts and intuition. Every victim of violence who lived to tell the tale said they had a bad feeling before the attack. Every single one of them. So how did Chris Rock, uh, sorry, how did Will Smith walk 40, 50, 60 feet, whatever it was, and Chris Rock not know something was up? So this is the whole thing. If we're friendly, if, if you and I hang out and then one day I decide to punch you in the face. If you didn't know me at all, and all of a sudden I'm here and you're in your garage or your office and I, I walk in and I'm like doing this to you. Mm -hmm. You're like going, hey, what the fuck, man? How'd you get in here? Your hands come up. And this is a non-conscious reaction. The body's cross extensor chain does this. You see it all over the world. It's body language for don't, don't come any closer. I'm scared. What's going on? You don't see any of that. Why? So if you don't know me and all of a sudden the door opens and I come in, you're like, hey, who are you? What are you doing here? And you start to get protective, defensive, territorial. Mm -hmm. That's instinctive. Everybody does that. Mm -hmm. If you know somebody, now I walk in, I slam the door and you might look up and go, hey, man, you don't have an appointment. And I go, hey, you and I have a fucking problem. Yeah, what's our problem? Oh, I have a gun. I'm going to shoot you. Whoa, whoa. Like, so there's a very subtle and scary conversation I have with the people that we consult with and coach where I explain statistically violent crimes from mass murder to rape are committed by people, you know, and, and it's a startling statistic in, in the female assault, sexual assault, it's 87%. They, they estimate 87%, you know, the person. And what I use to explain that is like, so where conventional self-defense is focused on how do you get out of a headlock, 
how do you get out of a choke? I'm going, if your reticular activating system allows the threat to get this close and then they attack you, it's a betrayal of that, the instincts and the intuition alarm. And there is almost no defense for it because if we know each other and I go, hey man, what did you what did you say about me online in that last podcast? I can't believe that. And you go, oh, it was a joke. Really? Whack! And I and I smack you. You're negotiating with a buddy over a misunderstanding, and he's flipping out over you. And you know, it's an interesting conversation because I I had it yesterday with my team, and I said, don't forget the murders, the abductions, the rapes. The the statistically, they're committed by people who know you. So when they show up inside your routine and there's something off, cognitive dissonance shuts that down. Hey, you look like you're upset, Tony. Yeah, I'm upset. I came here to kill you, Peter. Right? <laughs> Wait a minute. What did you just say? I make this joke, and it's a morbid joke, but I ask people, and, and, and I'm hesitating saying this on the show, but I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm just gonna go for it anyhow. For decades now, I've said to people in, in our seminars, I go, "How many of you could drop your mother if if you had to throw a punch, punch your mother?" And people are aghast. People are like, "Whoa!" And I go, most mass murders, statistically in history, I mean, the last few years have been a little crazy uh, and, and those numbers are skewed. But before that, those types of active shooting events were perpetrated by people who knew each other well. So you go, that's that crazy kid. That's that crazy kid. You're crazy. You're crazy. And then he comes in and where it wasn't the anomaly, the specter in the dark, it was the same guy that was just weird all the time. And you just, he got inside your radar. And I would ask people, I'd say, who here could drop their mother? And people were like, whoa, man, like, hey, time out, taboo. I go, listen, and I've been saying this for almost 30 years. If my mother walked into a room that I was in with an ax in her hand, we better be in the country. And the words coming out of her mouth have to have something to do with chopping firewood. In other words, my mother, an ax, and the language and the scenario all must mesh and be congruent. Otherwise, something's off. And this, is, and this is how far back I reverse engineer personal safety. And I tell people, like, like if you look at conventional self-defenses, how do I get out of a headlock? How do I do a gun disarm? How do I do? I just did an article on this uh, yesterday for our, our newsletter where conventional self-defense starts after the attack. That's too fucking late. Like, right? It's like... It, 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 it's an interesting thing. So I go way back into what does neurobiology tell us? So our alarm system, our gut goes, something's wrong here, but we've taught ourselves not to trust our gut. We've allowed ourselves to outsource our safety and we've all become domesticated. So it kind of so reminds me of uh, in the NFL, you know, who gets more injuries, the NFL or the national rugby over in Australia. And you would think that rugby would without all the pads, without all the helmets. But what they found was that in national football, with all the padding, with all of that, there is a outsourcing of, oh, I don't have to worry about it. So I can go in right. head first. I can, and so there's much more neck injuries, head injuries and everything in, in the more padded, more protected space, which is counterintuitive. But Yeah, and it's consistent with um, people think boxing gloves were designed to protect like somebody's head and they were designed to protect the hands. Mm. And because people used to smash their hands on people's heads and elbows, we don't think what the, what the padding does, like 
you you had to be really sure before boxing had gloves, it was all bare knuckle, right? And people used to stand, stand like this. And fights used to go 50, 60, 70 rounds, 100 rounds. Whoa. Yeah. Like they weren't like three round fights and six round fights and 12 round fights. And the reason for that, if you've ever, and I've cracked my hand and broken knuckles in, in my training over the years, you sprain your hand, you hit a bag and sprain it, your next punch, like this is a, the, you know, your first punch was like, wow, you know, and you're like, oh shit, I just broke my hand. Your next punch is, ah. <laughs> and so the, <laughs> they, they, they don't have film of this, but the, the, the fights went so long because you weren't doing flurries the way you did. And if your hands were hurting and bruised, think about a time you sprained your ankle or, or, you know, uh, had some bad blister or something, you know, you're walking like, like, you're like, ah. <laughs> you're, you're, you're moving like, so it's the same thing. People used to injure their hands and they would, they couldn't punch as hard. And so the fights would go way longer. Um, counterintuitive it, equipment is great, but if it lulls you into a, a false sense of security where you're out, you can outsource. I don't have to worry about this. Well, you do need to worry about it. And there's another thing that equipment does. And I, I designed a whole scenario suit and designed all the, this uh, equipment in 1993. We were launched this, took five years prototyping. And it was the first impact reduction design in the world. Most equipment was big and bulky. The idea was I'm going to create this padding between me and, and the threat. And this padding will disperse the impact and protect me. Well, what starts to happen is just like your example with football is you end up like being less vigilant, like, oh, here comes a big sidekick. You relax a little bit. The impact would hit. Two things would happen. The shockwave would still snap you, but you weren't braced. Your little, your core stabilization muscles weren't getting ready for impact the same way as if you didn't have the padding. And that's, and that's where we get those tweaks. The other thing is if the padding is too thick in the moment, it distorts your proximity sense. So you can't truly anticipate accurate impact, mm. right? So if my nose is here and you go to punch me, there's a part of me that goes, now I'm going to slip. But if I've got a helmet out here and it's four inches in front of my face mm. and I got a visor, I'm still looking at you my intuitive self knows that my nose is here. It's not reading where the plexiglass is. Mm -hmm. So I, I go safe, 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 whack, and then I get the whiplash. And that's part of why you're getting neck and head injuries because guys can brace, but it's the helmet that's getting hit early and our normal depth perception isn't reading that. So in our equipment, we made this as streamlined as, like literally your nose touches here. So we brought it in as close as close as possible on that, but that's interesting. <clears throat> that's a whole different, it's a completely different environment when you're breaking it down. It's cool to hear you break that down to such a, uh, a more minor scale than most of us are normally used to thinking. Um, and I would imagine that that would be a completely different environment. I was just watching a, a Joe Rogan clip where he was talking about Connor McGregor and how, how scary accurate he was, even while he's slipping and while he's dodging, whatever he's still landing his jabs right on the chin is the guy who's falling down. I, I would imagine that'd be very different if you added three inches or four inches, that'd be completely. Well, it, it makes it easier, right. To hit people because they're a bigger target. So I wanted, when I designed my gear, I wanted, I called it impact reduction. So people go like, what's that? It means I like, we made it 
you still feel shit. And I specifically looked at the neurobiology of survival. I looked at the neuroscience behind the startle flinch and why we move a certain way. And I would look at real violent encounters and go, how come people can't access the complex motor skills that they practiced? Well, their executive function was getting hijacked, right? Their executive function, which controls their cognitive brain saying, oh, I'll do wax on, wax off here. And then they're not doing that, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so I looked at all that, and I but I applied that in that same intuition to how I design equipment and how I design the scenarios. And I, I said, if I made the equipment capable of transferring impact and pain like no other equipment, then you would put it on and still go, so what's it feel like? We do a threshold drill in the beginning. So the threshold drill is what it is. Is I go, okay, check this out. And I hit you with a palm strike or an elbow, and you're like, fuck, man, that hurt. Yep. <laughs> Why? I thought if I put the gear on, it wouldn't hear. Nope. The gear just stopped your nose from getting broken or your, your superorbital ridge, your eye socket from getting cracked or your, a thumb going in your eye and detaching a retina. Check this out. Bend over. Whack. Here's a knee. Huh, ow. Whoa, that hurt. That sucked. Yeah, but your ribs didn't break. <laughs> like, so now it's suddenly, so we, we've reinserted the fear of impact. So now the body is like, okay, I'm braced, but yeah. I've got the gear on. So incidental impact is mitigated a lot. I mean, like I said, five years went into designing the gear. That's fascinating. That feels like a whole nother podcast in my mind too. Uh, <laughs> we can probably I'm, go down that right now. Happy to do it. It could be an infomercial for the gear. But listen, <laughs> listen you know, the U.S. Army bought 7,800 suits for their combative program. We sell gear, gear all over the world, mostly law enforcement, military uh, who, who need to do way more scenario training than, the, than they're already doing. But uh, mm. yeah, the, the last thing I want to say, come, let's come back to the, to the Chris Rock, Will Smith thing. If it's fake, there's nothing to talk about and it's, it's bizarre and sad. Um, if it's half fake, meaning they, they plan the first part, but then it got weird, mm -hmm. like, like in method acting, like a cop going deep cover, goes like, I'm acting here, but wait a minute, I'm not part of the role because it looked like he was really furious when he sat back down and he's swearing on, on TV, don't fucking spray my whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, that was weird. If you watch his wife in, did you see the clip where, where he's laughing and then he looks over and she's like, yeah, you know, disgust. yeah. So the whole thing's weird, <laughs> but what I can tell you is this. If I pretend it's real, and now people are asking, why didn't Chris Rock slip? Why didn't he flinch? Why didn't he do that? And it goes back to my explanation. This is very important. How does it make you and your audience safer? And it's a gruesome, morbid, uncomfortable conversation that we are a greater risk from the people we know than from the people we don't know because our instincts, intuition, our territorial imperative alarm will be set off by a stranger, but not by somebody we know. And that's, so when I look at that, when well, people go, well, how come he didn't do this? I go, because you know this guy, you're at the Academy Awards. It didn't have to be the Academy Awards. It could have been a coffee shop. It could have been, it could have been the day after he sees Rock, he walks up and he goes, hey man, I hope Jada wasn't too upset. Whack! He, he still would have smacked him mm -hmm. because our guard is down because this person's inside our circle of trust, whether they're uh, the postman, right? You see that person every day. I, once a week, the postman wants my signature. 
I open the door today, he kills me. Hey, man, what do you need me to sign? Oh, uh, this death certificate. Okay, that's who's <laughs> yours. What? Like, right? Like, like that would. It's a good idea for a movie, right? Postman kills me. <laughs> but, but does that make sense? Why, like, does, yeah. let, but no. I don't say nobody thinks about this stuff because this is like, if you Google the definition for self-defense, 99% of them say things like the physical act of protecting your property or your body. By definition, the assault, the kidnapping, the attempted rape, the attempted murder is already in action by definition. So when you look at how people practice, you look at the Merriam-Webster classic definition and you look at how people practice. Have you done any martial arts in your life? Uh, just a little bit. Think about every self-defense drill. It started after the attack. Let me show you how to get out of a headlock. Let me show you how to get over a lapel grab. Let me show you what to do when somebody throws a punch at you. Let me show you what to do with somebody as you is sitting on top of you. If you think about it, you've eliminated all situational awareness, all the intuition, instincts, discomfort that is that is a hundred percent of the time there in victims of violence. They all had a bad feeling. So in my research, I noticed that in the 90s, for, for now almost 30 years, th this is a, a, a key phase in our training is how do we cultivate the courage to listen to our intuition? So let's get into that a little bit, and especially for kids and or parents who have kids so that they can help train them. How do we minimize, how do we lower that percentage of, what did you say, 87% of people? That's a specific number to victims of sexual assault. Gotcha. So how do we minimize something like that? How do we shrink the window so that there isn't that much exposure, that much vulnerability? What are the signs that anybody can so, have to see that threat coming? Well, you know, and this kind of ties into what inspired this, this call is I want to get this no fear program out to parents and kids because fear is the key. People are afraid of fear and they don't realize fear is the radar, the alarm that sounds in your mind. I would say your intuition whispers in your ear and then your ego, your pride, your fear, you succumb or you override and you don't listen to it. So the, the no fear program, and of course, for people listening on audio, don't know how it's spelled. Anyone watching the video can see it's spelled K-N-O-W. It means to lean into fear, to get to know fear, that if you, if you get to understand what is triggering and causing the fear, it will empower you because you need to do some research. I'm afraid of this. We'll do some research and you become unafraid, right? Less afraid. An interesting thing, and I just want to throw this in here, there's a lot of things in life that you need to do while you're afraid. And staying afraid and not doing them doesn't change what's going on around you. This goes for relationship issues, financial issues, health issues, politics. Being afraid and sitting with your fear doesn't change what's going on around you. You're still being impacted at a cellular level, the cortisol, the anxiety, uh, and then externally, I didn't do anything about that. And I let it come onto my, you know, onto my porch. Where has critical thinking gone? Fear has been weaponized. The only way, this sounds grandiose, we save the future is by teaching parents and kids how to look at fear differently. And it sounds grandiose, but if you think about it, all future decisions are going to be made by our kids and then their kids. If they are being groomed 
and taught group think. Everyone gets a trophy. Don't listen to your instincts or intuition. There is no truth. There's just what's the propaganda. We're fucked, right? And so how do you do that? And it's not a, it's not like, well, memorize this line. And, and it's understanding how to read fear and then to use it as a spiritual guide to investigate. Now, and I'm getting a little too metaphysical here. Let me look at my life here. I'm 61 years old. I've lived with fear my whole life. And I still do. Fear management equals time management, meaning if you get a fear spike and you go, oh my God, I just read this tweet. Oh my God, if this is true, this means this. The fear spike creates a movie in your mind and you can be consumed by that, that it interrupts all your meetings during the day, your focus, you lost your appetite, you're not sleeping, right? I'm, I'm exaggerating, but I'm not. Everyone has gone through that. You know, you're waiting for uh, a test to come back from a doctor and you're on like edge for days and then everything comes back and you're fine. And what do you do? You're like immediately, you're like, oh my God, you step up, you stand up, you're light, you're giddy, you're in a good mood. Fear, psychological fear has serious weight to it and it can slow you down in a violent situation and it can, and it will slow you down in any situation if you're misreading or fixating on the movie that fear is creating in your mind. So we get a fear spike, we immediately try to, and this is an unfortunate thing, but you're the producer, you're the director, you're the screenwriter, and you've cast yourself in a horror movie in which you're all the victim in every scene. It's like, okay, uh, yeah, I just got asked to do this, but I'm going to bomb. I can't do this. I'm not going to do good in this audition. I'm going to screw up the, oh, she's not going to say yes if I ask her to marry me. Uh, I, whatever it is, I'm going to drop the ball. I'm going to, I'm going to strike out. Don't strike out. Don't strike out. And it can be whatever talk you have, depending on, on how you grew up or whatever. But most of us entertain thoughts of fear. So this program, the No Fear program, helps develop self-awareness so that we catch this negative self-talk and go, dude, what are you doing? And I use this movie metaphor because it's easy because a lot of us are like sitting there and then someone goes, hey, man, what are you thinking about? Oh, what? Like we're, we're daydreaming mm-hmm. and we're wasting time. That's why I said fear management is time management. If I learn to manage my fear, I manage my time. And time is the only resource we can't get back. But this isn't like woo-woo and, and weird and memorize this line and, and buy this patch and do it. It's like, I'm not trying to sell anyone. It's, it's a way to think. I need self-awareness to recognize when I'm producing a negative movie. And I use the acronym FEAR, F-E-A-R, false expectations appearing real. False expectation is a future event appearing real. I think it's real in my mind. And it's causing me to stop what I'm doing to worry about the future. So I'm visualizing something in the future that hasn't even happened and it's immobilizing me in the present. Thus screwing up my next pitch, my next swing, my next speech, my next talk, my next business deal. And I can tell you this, had and this, the program is so, I mean, I don't even know how many people have invested in the program, how many people we've, we've helped from complete strangers to good friends of mine. And I just used the example I shared with you where I go, dude, have you ever gone and seen a shitty movie theater? Of course. How many shitty movies? And be honest, how many shitty movies have you sat through, looked at your friend, you know, whoever you went with and went, 
that was shit. I kept thinking it was going to get better, but it was fucking shit, right? But I didn't want to leave because I spent, you know, 15 bucks on popcorn and 15 bucks on parking. And I spent more to get to the theater than I did on the tickets. So you sit through it versus how many times have you walked out of a movie because it was shit? Yeah, I've definitely probably sat through more hoping for the best and it never comes versus walking out. Right. And most and most people don't walk out of movies. Very few do. And I go like, so that's 90 minutes that you'll never get back. You sat in a shitty movie and you might go, no, I needed to turn off and unplug. I get it. That's okay. I was in the mood for popcorn. I I have days, (laughs) you know, there were after the pandemic for two years, movie theaters opened up. I went, you know, I want to go eat some popcorn in a movie theater. And I didn't care if the movie was good or not. Right. It was like, I just wanted that experience again. I liked it. I missed it. I love movies. What's my point is, what if instead of you going out as an event, going and trying to give the movie a shot, I wanted to go see an action film. It was shit that I knew when it was PG-13, there wasn't going to be enough blood and guts. That was, you know, oh man. But we had fun. High five. See, that's an event. I'm using it as an example. What if you have that going on multiple times a week and you're wasting hours in shitty movies in your head? Mm. What if you could learn to shut that off and or reframe it? And so the next level of learning how to use the No Fear program is in taking what the story is feeding you in your mind and then learning to read that like tea leaves. I don't get them. <laughs> I'm scaring people. I don't, I'm not, <laughs> we're not doing incense and, and crystals here. Uh, not knocking that if you're into that, but learning how to go, okay, I'm worried that, I'm worried that like, so I've trained fighters. I'll give you a great example. Hey man, how do you feel about the fight? Uh, good, nervous coach. What are you nervous about? I'm worried that I don't have enough, you know, uh, stamina or endurance to go into the later rounds. Okay. I could say, well, so you got to take them out early. Or I could say, Let's work on your stamina and endurance. What are you doing for stamina and endurance? Let's test it and let's, let's increase your aerobic capacity so that you don't have that worry. I used to call it in the 80s, UUC, unnecessary unconscious concern. What are you afraid of? But nobody, because everyone's afraid to talk about fucking fear. Mm-hmm. I come and I see you before something. I go, how are you feeling? Good, man. You look nervous. Yo, I'm, I'm okay. Okay, you'll be fine. Like the, that's it. <laughs> It's, you'll be fine. You got this. Break a leg. Yeah. I'm like with my athletes and the people I coach, I'm like, I'm nervous. What are you nervous about? Oh, it's stupid. Really? Okay. So don't tell me and let's not talk about it. <laughs> Wait a minute. What? I thought you were going to say something profound. I did. I said, what are you nervous about? And then we unravel the onion. There's, I don't know if I shared the story with you, but uh, it's, a, it's a great, great fight story. Uh, one of my amateur fighters was fighting for a title in a four-round kickboxing event. So amateur fights are three rounds. The title fight is a four-round uh, up in Canada back in the day. I don't know if the, the, the formats change. And I'm in Paul Sauvé Arena up in Montreal, which is like an old, like in Rocky One. Like, you know, the paint's coming off the wall and it smells like an old sports place. And it's this old, old arena. And we're there and, you know, 
it's it's the 80s so 1976 rocky came out already and i'm there and i'm more nervous before a fight than my fighters <laughs> i'm like when they're moving around you'll see me like twitching and moving and and like how are you doing i go i'm gonna throw up i'm so fucking <laughs> nervous right and i say to this kid sean who's fighting for his first title i go how do you feel kid and he goes i'm good coach i'm nervous and i look at him and i go look at me you're supposed to be nervous you're about to get in a fight the guy that you're fighting is going to try and punch you and kick you in the head. Mm. And you're going to do the same thing to him. And even if he's standing, this is during the Roberto Duran era. I don't know. You know who Duran is, right? Hands Stone. I don't yeah, actually. Okay. So Duran was a famous boxer. who was like a like scary, scary boxer. They called him Hands of Stone. He'd hit somebody like wherever he hit them. You know, he, he, he's, he was like when Connor was, was up and coming in his heyday, then he would just hit you at his left. And right. buckle your legs. So I said, even if your guy is standing in front of you, looking at you like Roberto Duran, inside his heart is pounding. He's got adrenaline going. The facade is, I'm going to fuck you up. But inside, he's got the same feelings that you have, Sean, because he's a man about to get in a fight. And he looks at me and he goes, thanks, coach. And he turns around and he starts shadow boxing and moving. And it was a great speech, right? It could have been, you could have been in any B-boxing movie. But really, you're you're supposed to be nervous. You're about to get in a fight. What a great, honest answer, right? I go sit down. I'm looking at my corner man there, talking, going, hey, I want the bucket here. I want this and that. And something starts to nag at me. Everything I built in my businesses over the years, I've, I've it's been built on the inspiration of intuition. I get an idea, I get a feeling, and then I lean into that. I go, is that true? Let me investigate that. And you asked me a while back and I gave like 10 different answers. Like how do we help parents and kids with their personal defense? Well, let's for a moment and I'll come back to the Sean story. Self-defense needs to be a holistic principle. Meaning I got to think about self-defense when I cross the street, when I go driving with the food I'm going to put in my body, uh, who I'm going to hang out with. If we thought about self-defense in a holistic way, it would impact our lives more differently, you know, and more, more profoundly. So most of us only think, if I think about what do you do for self-defense, Peter, you go, well, I started doing jujitsu. Right, okay, that's great if you're on the ground. What about if you think you're being followed? Oh, what if you're in a car being followed? And speaking of that, what the fuck are you eating, man? Like this is all bad for you. You're being attacked right now with all of these carcinogenic bullshit, right? So I like to tell people, let's, let's think holistically with self-defense. And then when we get some sort of fear spike, we lean into that, evaluate that. Now, let's go back to Sean. We're in the changing room. My intuition starts nagging at me. Something starts to bother me in my gut. I'm like, and I'm like talking, I'm like, and I'm, I'm proud of my answer. Because <laughs> I was nervous. He goes, I'm nervous. I'm nervous for him. I go, well, you're supposed to be nervous. We're getting in a fight. When I say we, I mean you. I, you're okay. But I realized that I gave him a fortune cookie answer, which is what most experts do. You'll be fine. You prepared. You did the work. You're ready to go. Let me massage you. Remember the strategy. Do this. And I gave him a fortune cookie answer instead of specifically asking him what he was nervous about. And I realized that there. I was like, what? what's my intuition? What's wrong? My answer was great. My answer was great. You're supposed to be nervous. There's nothing wrong with that. Holy shit, light bulb moment. And I stand up and I go, Sean, look at me. I go and apologize for what I told you before. He goes, what are you talking about? That calmed me down. I go, no, 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 no. I didn't ask you what you were nervous about. 
I just told you it's okay to be nervous. It's part of the answer. But what are you nervous about? He goes, it's, it's stupid. I don't even want to say it. Well, if it's stupid, just say it. <clears throat> what are you nervous about? He goes, this is the dumbest thing ever. I've done 10 rounds preparing for this. I'm trained. I'm ready to go. But I keep thinking I've never done a four-round fight. And four rounds, I mean, I've done 10 rounds in the gym, but I know that extra round with smaller gloves in front of thousands of people, it's going to be different. And I'm wondering if I've got the stamina and the gas to do that. Mm. Well, this is a different conversation than three months before the fight because you can't improve your endurance minutes before the fight. Oh, let's go for a run. Right. So I look at him and I go, oh my God, like I would never have guessed that. If you had said to me, why can fighters be nervous before fights? Well, maybe their girlfriends were inside. Maybe their mom's there for the first time. Maybe they uh, injured their hand, but didn't want to tell their coach. So they're worried about, right? There's a, a, there's a zillion things. And the problem that as coaches and parents, we just say things like, go to bed. Mom, I'm scared. There's no monsters. Go to bed. I can remember my boy freaking out, didn't want to go to bed because there's a monster under the bed. And I said, hey, listen, I'm going to go under the bed and I'm going to show you there's no monster there. Dad, don't do it. Hey, we're going to turn on the lights. We're going to move the furniture. It wasn't like, go to bed. There's no such thing as a monster. Mm-hmm. There's no such thing as Santa Claus. Go to bed. <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> right? It's like, get in there, get in the, the trenches and expose the fear. So I say to Sean, and this is, this is classic, I say, I say to him, because I would never have guessed that. In a million years, as a guy who's been training fighters, I would never have guessed that he's worried about two minutes of an eight-minute event for a guy who can do 10 rounds in the gym. But he's right. Sparring with your friends and your buddies and your training team is not the same as the pressure of walking out there. Mm-hmm. And um, I look at him and I said, Sean, can you do two rounds? And he goes, yeah. I said, so just do two rounds twice. He goes, what? I go, don't let the math beat you. Do two rounds twice. At the end of the second round, just focus. You only have two rounds. Make it manageable. Mm. And so at the, literally at the end of the second round, I shoot some water in his mouth. I look at him and go, look at me. I go, hey, can you do two rounds? He goes, yeah, absolutely. And, and it was amazing. It was almost like a really bad movie. In amateur kickboxing, the rings are 16-foot ring. It's a foot on each side to the rope. So you're 14 feet away from the other corner. And you can hear the other corner talking if they're talking, if they're not whispering. Mm-hmm. At the end of the second round, after I said that to Sean, we heard the other corner after the guy had his water. He looks at his coach. He goes, coach, what round is this? Because a lot of times, like when you're like going nuts at shit, you lose, you lose sense track of time. But it was just like classic. Anyways, he went out and we won the title um, that night. But I believe even though he did the work and he did the risk and I'm not taking any credit for it. It was, is if I said to you, Hey, let's go for a mile run. And you go, man, and this is maybe something that your audience can relate to. If I go, Hey, let's go for a run. Everyone who's not a runner goes, how far, mm-hmm. how long are we running for? Cause I don't like running. Are you a runner? Personally, uh, I'm a jogger. Sure. Okay. I, and, yeah. And, I've run a lot of my life. And, and, and are you okay with running two, three, four, five miles? Yeah. Okay. That's, that's about the limit. <laughs> okay. But what's interesting for people watching this is you went, you looked up and to the right, you visualized yourself running, you visualize yourself puking or shin splints or your back hurting. Uh, you visualize a threshold and you went, yeah, that's about the limit. There was a moment of, of fear. And so here's another thing, reframing fear. 
Fear doesn't have to be my ass got tight and my hands came up. So if your limit is four or five miles and I go, Peter, we're going to go for a run today. And you go, okay, how far? And I go, well, what's your max? What is your max that you've done where you go, I'll, I'll run four miles, five miles I'm, maybe. Yeah, I mean, right now I'm not in shape. So I would say probably five miles, six miles. I go, we're doing 10 miles today. If that was real, you'd be like, the first thing, you wouldn't even say anything to me. You're going, he's fucking crazy. I'm not doing 10 miles. I haven't run. I'm not in good shape. Immediately, the movie in your mind, this is fun. If I was coaching you right now, the movie in your mind is, I'm not doing it. There's no way I'm going to do it. I don't have the gas. I don't have the endurance. And even if I push myself because of some ego thing, I'm going to regret that for a week. I'm going to mess up my back. My knees are going to be fucked. Am I right? Mm -hmm. Like, And so you, I can... By saying something, the length of a tweet, I can create a movie. And if I said, I'm coming to your house and we're running and I'll be there, you know, at, in two hours, for two hours, you're going to worry about this. And you've ruined two hours of your life because of mismanaged fear. Now, that's just part of the program. The next thing is, let's say you said, I've got to run 10 miles. I would tell you, what are you comfortable running right now? You go five, six, but I, I dread that. We're going to run for two miles at a light pace. And at that point there, we're going to communicate, how do we feel? And if we did that every two miles, pretty soon you do. So I tell people, you don't like running a mile. I want you to run 400 yards. And then I want you to pause and go, can I do that 400 yards again? And then I want you to pause and do that again. And then do it one more time. And, they, and everybody can run four 400s. And they just did a mile. Mm. It's breaking it down in manageable chunks in your mind. And it's the same thing with violence. It's the same thing with, uh, with, with building a business. It's the same thing. It's, it's such a subtle, simple concept. It is. And you can see how it bypasses most people's cognitive executive thinking because it is so subtle. Let's break this down really quick just to recap. So the first thing that I heard you say is really just being aware being aware of the the mental movie that um, your triggers, that the, the fear comes up, you start to have that mental movie. Interrupting that, you talked about the next phase, reframing. What were the different things that somebody can do once so, they acknowledge the fear? So the tricky part is actually improving our self-awareness. Everyone here, that's your superpower, right? Self-awareness. Mm-hmm. And, and most of us, it's a Dunning-Kruger thing. Most of us think we're more self-aware <laughs> than we are in 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 we are all works in progress right what's what was important 10 years ago is not important or as important now in as our life evolves but self-awareness is the key to critical thinking but the fear spike redirects us from the self-awareness we rationalize thing and i like the play on words if i had a whiteboard which i do behind me but i write out rationalize but rational you know hyphen lies we rationalize to ourselves I don't need to do this. I don't need to say that. I don't need to move into, you know, this scary area of my life. I can avoid it because it's not that important. Basically, what, what happens is you, you, we get a fear spike that's triggered by the news, a pain in our knee, uh, 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 a shitty phone call, a call from the bank. Uh, we think we're being followed. Some stimulus creates a fear spike. Mm -hmm. Cognitive dissonance or overconfidence or Dunning-Kruger or, or whatever redirects 
that initial impulse. So the first impulse is a fear spike. What we need are fear management skills to assess that. And then we need critical thinking skills to deploy what is the thing I need to do? Is it make a phone call, put my hand up, you know, punch somebody in the face, run away? What is the action? What is the functional action that's going to solve this? I think I know if I could interrupt you for just a second. I think something that's crucial at that point too is what you said earlier with your boxer is peeling the onion layers back, knowing the fear, understanding specifically what is it that makes you nervous? Why do you fear being alone? Why do you fear failure? Right, looking at those specific things and getting the the person's unique exactly. mind movie, I guess, if you will, on that. Yeah, and and so what you what you want to do in the, in the classic speaking of Rogan, you remember that that thing he did several years back where he did that talk about being the hero in your story. Yeah, right. And and so it's you got this negative movie in your mind going, man, I'm going to suck at this. I don't know. I shouldn't start a podcast. I'm not good at interviewing people. And you have this movie going on, right? And I love when I'm working with like, like uh, new entrepreneurs and I go, okay, you got a lot of fear. Every entrepreneur has fear, but most entrepreneurs came from a, a place in business where they weren't happy. And I go, how long when you realized you had your own idea and you wanted to go out on your own, how long did it take you to finally do that? And usually it's years. It's years before, yeah, I worked this job and wanted the security, but, and then seven years later, or 10 years later, or five years later, that's how long their movie was in their mind. <laughs> seven years, five years. So I always tell people the fear spike creates doubt, doubt creates hesitation, hesitation creates procrastination. Procrastination unchecked becomes fixation. And then that can become clinical or non-clinical anxiety. And we're really, really worried about this. I mean, I work with athletes who you know, build themselves up into anxiety near full-on panic attacks before events. I've had athletes say to me, I think I'm going to die before I compete. I can't sleep. I can't eat. Uh, I, I, I feel like I'm going to die. And I remember this, this one girl I was working with, she says that to me. She goes, the, the, I know like Thursday night, the, the event's on Saturday. The fear's going to hit me. This is what I'm talking to her on a Wednesday. She goes, and I just want to die. I'm, it's such a horrible feeling. So I I let her finish talking. And I said, you've been a serious athlete for how long? She was like 10 years. And I go, this is like a consistent ritual. She goes, oh my God, yes. I go, so in the last 10 years, how many times have you died? I just want to, I just want to get a number. She goes, what? I go, like, how many times have you, have you been killed by this fear? Because like the way you're describing it is I'm going to die. She goes, well, I never died. It was just like a figure of speech. I go, well, then you need to fuck fear. She goes, what? Fuck fear. Face it. Understand it. Control it. Know it. That's another t-shirt. I, I, sometimes I wear my fuck fear shirt. But fuck is a cool acronym for it's the formula to change your life, man. Face it. Understand it. Control it. Know it. Fuck fear. Mm-hmm. Not being cavalier. Not being. And I like we have a printer who didn't want to print the shirt because they were just their religious values. And I was like, dude, it's, it's an acronym that actually helps people. <laughs> he was like, whoa, I didn't know. But that's the reframe. How do I face? You, you, I'm sure I said this in our first talk, but if I haven't, it's one of my most favorite lines from our program. You can't be brave if you're not afraid. In real life, the primary ingredient for courage 
if this was a, a container of courage, it would have one ingredient here and it would be fear. Let me explain. If you do something, you let's say you go skydiving, base jumping. I go, dude, you just jumped off that building in a wingsuit. Holy shit, I'm afraid of heights. How do you do that? And you go, dude, I'm uh, sponsored by Red Bull. I'm an adrenaline junkie. I go, you're not afraid? No, I love that shit. It's like that feeling. I would argue that that person who can do that, who's the feeding off the adrenaline, didn't need courage to do that. The person who's afraid of the height, who does it anyhow. And I've got a, a, a buddy of mine, Andy Stump, who, you know, former SEAL, base jumper, who respects fear so much. That's why he does it. If, you, if I said to him, are you afraid before you jump? He's like, fuck yeah. That's why I'm so meticulous in my preparation. This is a, 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 a fun example. I was doing a talk for about 60 people in Florida last summer. And in the audience there, I met him earlier because he brought his son. He said, hey, I'm so-and-so. This is my teenage son. I wanted him to hear you talk. And he goes, he introduces himself. He's a firefighter. So I thank you for your service, man, amazing. And I said, hey, you just gave me an idea. I'm going to ask the audience something later. Do not answer until I ask you to answer. He says, okay, got it. So I'm telling the group, here we are, 60 plus people. And I said, how many of you know for a fact, don't be cavalier, don't be metaphysical, don't be spiritual, know for a fact that you would run into a burning building to save a person you don't even know, a cat, a dog, someone's grandmother, you know for a fact that you could manage your fear and run into a building that you weren't sure was going to fall down on you or you were getting engulfed in flames. And a woman in the front puts her hand up like halfway and she goes, I, I would like to believe that because of this, sounds like I'm shamelessly plugging the program, but it was a no fear seminar, that by understanding fear, that I could manifest that courage. As you say, you can't be brave if you're not afraid. I said, but do you know for a fact? She goes, no, but I hope I would have that courage to be that courageous bystander. I said, okay, that's a fair answer. And I turned to the firefighter that nobody knows is a firefighter. And I go, what about you? You didn't put your hand up. Do you know for a fact, sir, that you would run into a burning building? He goes, actually, I do. I go, I'm confused. How do you, how does, how does everyone else not know that, but you know you would run into a burning building? What kind of arrogance is this? He goes, well, I'm a firefighter. So, and it was like, everyone was like, oh shit. And it was like the room like started to, to, to chuckle. He had learned how to control. He learned how to fuck fear through his training, face it, understand it, control it and know it. He doesn't run in without his fire retardant club. He's not afraid. Of, he's not like he's not afraid of the fire. He respects it. And he goes, don't open that door. Make sure the kit's on here. Let's do this. Okay, everyone get the fuck out. Okay, now we can... There's a strategy. So what he's done is he's trained to face the fear. And that's really kind of the metaphor here is if we avoid all the fear, we don't develop the courage muscles, the strength to face fear. The, the formula is the same. Fear creates doubt, doubt creates hesitation, hesitation creates procrastination. If I say to you, Peter, it's uh, Tuesday on Friday, I'm coming into town. I'm going to kick your fucking ass. You have four days to figure it out. But if I tap you on the shoulder and I go, dude, you just cut me off and I'm furious and we're going to fight now. Now you've got four seconds to figure shit out. Mm -hmm. The sequencing is the same. But when I've got four days, I, can, I have time to procrastinate. When I've got four seconds, I don't. Mm -hmm. 
it's an interesting thing that I'm able to apply the formula, whether I'm working with a military group or a family and their kid. Um, I don't know if I mentioned the last call, but it really inspired a big movement uh, uh, for me in trying to get this into parents is you could probably notice I got a bunch of tattoos. One of my one of my tattoo artists is Guy Aaron in in Vegas. We've become friends. He's done a bunch of, of work on me and we've known each other now a while. He calls me up in the middle of the pandemic. He says his 10-year-old son is starting to display signs of anxiety. And he wanted to know if my No Fear program was too old for him. And I said, I don't know your son. He's 10. I don't know how mature or evolved or what he's into. I said, but it's not too old for you. And you're his coach, dad. Unless you're just letting socialist, Marxist education systems groom your kids. And there may, of course, there's good teachers, but there's a lot of really not good teachers out there now. And that's been exposed. So I said, you should be working with him on this stuff anyhow. You need to be, if you have fear about how your son is handling fear. So you both have fear. So he gets the program. I'm back in Vegas a month later. Did I read this letter to you or show it to you last time? Jenny sent it to me, so I saw it. But go ahead and read it for the audience. Yeah. Um, I, I go in to get, a, get some work done about a, like a month and a bit after they started doing the program together. And Aaron turns to me, he goes, oh, uh, Salem asked me to give this to you. And he hands me, like, when's the last time you got a letter? Like, I don't even know. I'm like, what is this? How do you like it? Right. And I open it up and it's a handwritten letter, right? I'll read it and, and feel free to share the, <clears throat> the link. But I want to say this as a tough guy, macho type A, I fucking started to cry mm. at, in the tattoo parlor reading this. Mm. And I'll tell you why. I wasn't close with my dad. If I had an emotional issue, my dad would say things like, don't be a wimp. Like that was the coaching, Right. I grew up in the 60s, right? And, and uh, I'll read this. Dear Tony Blower, thank you for giving me the tools to have a good mindset and for making me into a better person. Me and my dad have been listening to your seminars. It is helping both of us, and I think that is awesome. I would also like to thank you for giving me the tools that help me be brave when I'm afraid, to always practice courage and remember that courage is contagious. I'm excited to learn more and always move forward. Thank you very much, Salem Jackman. That's a 10-year-old kid. Mm -hmm. he's, he's paraphrasing language you've heard here as a 10-year-old by hand. But here's the thing. The relationship between the father and son has been amplified. They're now talking. In fact, the last time I saw him, he was telling me that they were in a store, like a sandwich shop, and they were eating and a guy walked in projecting a weird energy and he noticed Salem stop eating and look at the guy and we just watched him. And his dad said, what's going on? And he goes, that guy was weird. There's something was off with him. And it wasn't like, okay, let's leave here right away. And it wasn't like, don't judge people. It was like, okay, that's your body's intuition telling you. Like he went right into it. You need to trust that. You need to be ready. If what would you do if, okay, this is an escape room. This is an improvised weapon. This is a, right? Nothing, nothing happens, but you're, you're programming responses. Just like if you're driving fast and you're, you're coming up over a hill and you see a brake light go on, you're better off choosing safety. 
and going, I should slow down just in case there's a cop on the other side of the hill or traffic on the other side of the hill or an accident on this. I just saw a brake light come on. That's a pre-contact cue. Am I looking into the future and allowing, and don't confuse that with false expectations appearing real. Can I see something in my immediate future that's telling me, ah, that's the fear spike, lean into it, face it, understand it, control it, get to know it. Mm. Awesome. Tony, this was so, there's so much practical advice and wisdom in there. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for sharing that letter. To me, that's such an inspirational demonstration of the work that you're doing. and, And frankly, the work that we all need to be doing, given the fact that we're living in more chaotic times and the future is uncertain. Thank you for your time today. And and I appreciate you sharing that message. It's a powerful one. Yeah, uh, man, always, anytime, hopefully your audience digs it. If they've got questions, uh, specific questions, alert me to that. My favorite stuff is trying to help people. Listen, you know, you said chaotic times, fear has been weaponized by mainstream media. Fear has been weaponized by most politicians. Fear has been weaponized. And the only way to combat that is to understand fear is to recognize that and go, okay, this sucks. I got to lean into this, but like Salem said, and I shared earlier, you can't be brave if you're not afraid. It's the primary ingredient. And if you just remember that every time you get that fear spike, you go, okay, this is supposed to be happening. This means my body's working. It's trying to tell me something and, and go from there. Mm. Awesome. Where can people go to find out more about you? We've mentioned that in the last call, but for those that are new to this call, where should they go? If, if you just want to see really what my whole company does and see all the different verticals for our, our training, go to blowertrainingsystems.com and you know we'll give you the links again if you don't have them. Blowertrainingsystems.com, my last name, B-L-A-U-E-R. And there's stuff in there, whether it's the gear or coaching or training with me live or virtually. And then I'm in all the, you know, social media channels. I am lovingly shadow banned on, on a number of places because I represent a, a threat to world order, apparently, by teaching people how to think about fear. But you'd have to type in my name at Tony Blauer on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Gotcha. Well, I'm, I'm proud to have you on the program. If you're getting shadow banned, it means you're <laughs> providing some I, uh, critical thinking to the world. It's, it's ridiculous. You know, before all this started, I, I used to have so much fun engaging people online and now I'll post important shit. And if nobody sees it, it's just suppressed. Yeah, it's frustrating. That's another podcast in and of itself too. Yes, well, sir. again, <laughs> Mr. Blower, thank you so much. This was an awesome conversation. Thank you. Take care. Be safe. Take care. Take care, man.